First, a special message from our sponsors. We wanted to let you know that we are highly selective when it comes to our sponsors. We only collaborate with businesses that align with our values and what we truly believe in. Today's episode is made possible by Gallery 101, a remarkable art gallery nestled in the heart of Basalt, Colorado. Gallery 101 is co-owned by the talented twin artists Ingrid D. Magidson and Sybil Hill Carter, who together form a dynamic and influenced female force in the art world. Their extraordinary artwork has graced galleries across the nation. To explore their captivating creations and learn more about Ingrid and Sybil's artistic journey, visit their website at www.gallery101basalt.com. Again, that's www.gallery101basalt.com. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hi, Irina. Hi, Bella. What a busy day for us today. Just running from one location to another. And they're both so fabulous. I know. This amazing women that we feel so lucky to interview and get to know their story and share with the world. And the world becomes a better place because we share a story and we get closer And at the end of the day, we realize that we're much more similar than we are different. And that's the message for today to the universe. Today we have, I don't even know how to describe her, a goddess, a queen, (laughs) uh, such a good friend and just a badass woman and a business owner, and a mother, and wife, and just somebody who you can count on any day or night. I haven't called her at night, so I'm going to find out about that at some point, but (laughs) she's... Not after 8 p.m. I turn into a pumpkin. Yeah, she's a good, good friend of mine, (laughs) and she is a owner of LS Ventures. Her name is Lisa Clark. Lisa Clark. You could say Sullivan. Sullivan. You could say Sullivan. Why did I say Clark? That's okay. I answered to any of them, really. <laughs> it's not li- just like a random name that you came up with? No. Oh. It's my husband's last name. Okay. Clark. And I like she- pseudo took it, pseudo not. Then I just left it. So I like Oh, that. so you still go? See? Mm-hmm. Something I didn't know. So you, you didn't take his last name. <gasps> Power to you. <laughs> my husband made me took his last name. <laughs> no, I actually, I like it. I think it yeah. served me better because nobody could say my last name because it's Ukrainian. Yeah. Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you for being on a podcast. Um, sure. You have such an amazing story and I am looking forward to hearing it more because I am sure that I'm going to learn stuff from you about you today that I didn't know. Um, so yeah. let's jump in. Okay, sweet. I get to have the first question. Okay. <laughs> so how did you and Irina meet? Um, this is a really funny story when we tell people this, oh. but we lived in the same building, condo building, and didn't know about each other. And also didn't know that we were both pregnant about the same time. <clears throat> but our super nosy neighbors kept getting our spouses mixed up. So because they're both black, that's really why it was. And, <laughs> and yeah. So one neighbor like kept thinking that Roy, Irina's husband, was my husband. 
And then they would see me and I was pregnant, but they hadn't seen Kyle yet. So that's how they knew that like somebody was pregnant, but didn't associate Irina being Roy's wife. Like it was weird. It was just weird. Somebody was pregnant with something. <laughs> like, yeah, somebody was pregnant, but we don't know who, who, which one it is. So the neighbor kept mixing us up. And then um, I don't remember how we like ended up like finally meeting and running into each other. I remember. <laughs> it's a funny story. I don't know if you remember. So my daughter was born in October and Lisa's son in April. Yep. So That's I right. remember I was, you know, very pregnant. I used to see Lisa and I would say hi to her, but just like you would say to a neighbor, Hi, hi. Yeah. She used to run a lot. And we used to, we have the stairs, right? Kind of like, you know, remember by those oh, garages? Oh, I remember And you those. would ru- run, up and da- uh, run up and down those stairs. And I remember you were walking with cream and I was still pregnant. So like we stopped, like Roy and I were going somewhere. We stopped and I said, um, congrats to you. And you looked at me and you're like, you too? <laughs> She did this like circle around my belly, not touching my butt. She's like, you too. There was enough of that. I was like, I'm not going to do that. There's people that try to do that when you're pregnant too. Like, Yeah. Can I ask about, is that like normal that people just go up and touch your stomach when you're pregnant? Is that? Well, people do it, but is it normal? No. No, I mean, it's it's not like. It's a full of like your personal space. And then the baby, it's weird. I've ever heard. weird. I don't know why people do it. Because, so the thing is, like, when you're pregnant, right? I mean, of course, your belly is big. So when somebody you know come and touches it, sure. But I remember I used to work at the bank and I was standing in the middle of the bank. This woman comes to me and like, and I turn and I turn away. I was like, what the hell? And then she went and told, like, one of the tellers at the bank, she's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what's wrong with her. She didn't let me touch her pregnant belly. What's wrong with, I'm sorry, what's wrong with me? That's the weirdest it's thing I've It's weird. Ever. Like, no, you shouldn't even feel right about it. Like, well, even, this, like, didn't even ask, hey, hi, Irina, can I touch your belly? Are you pregnant? I mean, of course I'm pregnant, That, but, you know, but can I touch your belly? No, she just comes and, like, I was like, please don't. Could you imagine, like, think about it, like, if you weren't pregnant, just going up to exactly. random people and grabbing their stomachs? Because it just looks like that way, and I've... So <laughs> wild. How did we get to talking about the belly? You guys were both pregnant? Oh, we yeah. were both pregnant. We were pregnant. both pregnant. Yeah. And then we finally actually talked to each other after. So I remember I brought a plate of cookies to your house. And then you guys brought food when Emilia was born. That's right. Um, but the good thing that came out of living there and with all the noisy, you know, HOA people, that we got to have this friendship that we have now. So I'm, I'm grateful yeah. even even with the nosy neighbors. That was That was a good thing. Lisa, you are a child of an immigrant. So your mom is American mm-hmm. and your dad is from Guyana. Mm-hmm. How how did that happen? Like, did did where did they meet? So my dad came to the U.S. when he was 25. And um, most of the family, when they would travel <clears throat> from Guyana, would be in New York. So, like, there's still family that's in New York. But my dad traveled to New York and then decided that he was going to go to Ohio. I think there was a job opportunity that was in Ohio, and it was for a large like accounting firm. And he left New York, went to Ohio, and then met my mom when they were both working at Sears. Like, okay. depending on the age group of folks watching this, they might be like, I don't even know what Sears is. But Billy, do you know what Sears is? 
It's like a washing machine store, right? I mean, it's it's like it's like a it's like a Kohl's. It's like an it's like what Kohl's is now is sort of what except they don't have appliances. So like Sears had appliances, and that's what's interesting. What, yeah. It's like <laughs> my mom was like selling vacuums. I don't know, but I don't know. But that's where my parents met, and they just I guess they just decided they wanted to be together, liked each other that much, and then. Um, they got married, and my mom till this day still says that the gift they got was a a can opener. And I remember it because it was like olive green, and it was the only gift that they got when they were married, whatnot. But um, yeah, so like my dad, he played sports, so he'd already done quite a bit of traveling that mm-hmm. was in Europe and represented his country playing basketball and all kinds of stuff like that. And I think he just always like the ambition was always there, so he's like, I'm gonna leave. And so, like, he didn't learn to drive until he was, like, 25 or 26 years old. Um, He rode his bike everywhere. Then Mm. he still rides it now, stuff like that. But, like, the the work ethic and those pieces that sort of were instilled in me. I mean, it came from both of my parents, but it's a very different experience when you have immigrant parents and the relationship to work and what that looks like. Um, So, and it's a little different, like when I tell people that now, but mm-hmm. yeah. So like having an, you know, an American parent and then a parent who is like coming in at like a chunk of their life has been somewhere else. It's just very different of how you grow up and how you're raised and how, how my friends were, how their families were, all of that. How was the dynamic at your house? Because, you know, my household is the same, right? I'm from yeah. Ukraine. My husband is an American. So there is a different dynamic at my house I feel like than if if I had Ukrainian husband or if my husband had an American wife how was it for you growing up in that type of household so like my dad's family didn't necessarily approve of their relationship because my mom was American so like my dad's Mm. family did not want him to be with an American woman so it already was contentious like (laughs) already right so, but growing up, like, um, there were always foods, cooking techniques, flavors and spices that would come from there. So, like, my relationship to home cooking and meals was not like a kid who could see McDonald's or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. That's just not what was in our house. And, um, and like, with my mom, like, she was very much like, the, the roles, like the tradition of the roles, like those were things that also did not come up for us. So mm-hmm. what we would call them now is like, you know, mom does this, dad does that. And it was like, no, there was a lot of equal of sharing of roles. So that could have been culturally from my dad or it could have just been independent of what it's something that he decided to do that was different mm-hmm. between my parents. But, you know, as kids, like outside was the thing like it just all of these things that my dad would do as a kid same thing with my mom they then transferred those things to us so like plenty of that time was spent outside um you know my dad was very much so like you know a figure it out kind of person and like my mom was the one who was also like you know super hyper independent with things so I kind of got it on both sides and like I'm the only girl so I have two older brothers Mm -hmm. and I'm the youngest one And because of that, like, I got super spoiled and was babied and all the things. But then I also, like, 
kind of became a really good like negotiator because my two older brothers were always doing shit and mm-hmm. I was not. And I'm the one who's like watching them. And I'm like, well, you don't get in trouble if you let me either go with you <laughs> oh. or you pay me or you chip me off something. And I won't say anything. So like I was smart enough to do that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so like just watching both of my parents, there were times where like my mom was home with us. There were times where she went back into the workforce. There were times where, like my dad, he always worked though, like no matter what, he was mm-hmm. always, that was always just a part of what we we're used to seeing. But through all that, like they never missed a sporting event. They never missed an activity. They never missed like, there were just so many critical parts of playing sports as a kid, even myself and my brothers, like my parents were always there, even when we had time to be like across the country or something like that. And I remember this one time when I was playing club basketball and we had a tournament in Tennessee and I was so disappointed because it was going to be the first time that my parents were not there. So I'm really upset about this. What am I like 15, 16 years old? And at this point I'd traveled like I'd traveled every single summer for, for basketball. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh man, they're not going to be able to be there. So I get on a plane and, you know, land with the team and do all that. And I come down the escalator of the hotel that we're in and I look down and I was like, is that my dad? Like, oh, that's my dad. And then I'm like, where's my mom? Like, <laughs> Where's mom? And then I see my mom and I'm like, how did you, what did you, and my dad's like, the second that you left, he's like, we got in the car and we drove. So my parents drove to Tennessee. Well, I flew and then they met us there and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, that's pretty amazing. And they're like, we just knew we were going to get in the car and we wanted to go and we wanted to see you play out of the state. And I was like, wow. it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It makes me so emotional because I think... Not, I think, you know, every kid, it's not, you know, it's not the presence. It's not, it's just my parents were there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like somebody said, it's not the, the presence you remember. It's the, it's the quality time you spend with parents. And it's so critical, yeah. you know, at that at any age. But I think, you know, when you're a teenager, you're kind of starting to come to your own and mm-hmm. everything and becoming like transitioning to an adulthood and for your parents to show you we are there, like no matter what, even though you knew and you yeah. you probably were like, oh, they're not there, but you know, and but then you see them, oh my gosh, I can just imagine how happy you were when your parents yeah, were there. I mean, I will never forget it till this day of like being completely shocked and then being like, how the hell did you drive that fast? Like, <laughs> how did you get here that fast yeah. kind of thing? I don't remember anything else about the tournament. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember any, I don't remember coming home. I don't remember how I played. I don't remember anything, but I remember them being there and seeing them there and being like, oh my gosh, like they're going to be here. And then I get to hear my mom yelling crazily at every single game. And like, she's the mouth. My mom is the mouth. Oh, my, my parents were at all my games too. And I was, you know, you're a teenager. I was like, don't come, don't come. My mom would bring a cowbell. Yeah. And just like, yep. in the. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Sure yes. Exactly. That's my boo boo, and I yes. wasn't good, and I was like, "Oh <laughs> dear God!" <laughs> like that. Yes. Mom's oh. the cowbell, all the things, a whistle. It was really her mouth, honestly. Like, <laughs> I've met Lisa's mom. Okay, like, she just and I love her because <laughs> she reminds me a lot of my mom. Her mom is like. There are some women that when they're in the room, you feel their presence. Like you feel that they're there. Yeah. 
Lisa's mom is one of those moms. My mom is one yeah. of those moms. I have another friend. His mom is like that. You feel their presence, mm-hmm. you know? So I can only imagine what she was doing at your games. But And then it, it trickled into, like, my niece's games. So, like, she plays soccer. But the kids loved it. Like, the other players loved it. I did, too, at a certain point. But after a while, I was like, this is kind of annoying. But my... T- teammates really liked it so i was like i guess i'll be quiet about it but my mom would yell constantly yeah and it would be great if she got it as the right sport most of the time she would but there were times where she would call the field the court the court the something else and it's like i i guess <laughs> just do whatever you can a do. for effort yeah pretty much like thanks mom <laughs> love Aww. you can you be quiet now <laughs> sure. that's amazing it's amazing to have and important to have you know supportive supportive parents because that so I guess the question would be, how does having the parents that you have and what they mm. install in you shape who you are today? Yeah, that's big. Um, I mean, it's a combination of them. It's a combination of my grandparents. It's a combination of just overarching life experiences, the things that they exposed us to. Um, you know, like I said, like my dad did a lot of traveling, so it wasn't he wasn't afraid to try new things and wasn't afraid to introduce us to those things. And so as long as we were open to that, that ultimately is what helped kind of create how I saw myself, how I wanted to approach doing work or like the work I do in the world kind of thing. I can say that now it's hard to say that when you're, you know, your twenties or whatnot or in college or things like that. But he was always like, both of my parents were always in the spirit of, trying it and not being afraid of something that was completely unknown to you um, and that you can do things and be scared while you're doing them. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of that was true when my parents, when we were transferred to Colorado um, from Ohio, that like my mom left everything that she knew there, like all of her friends, all of her family to move to Colorado. And I remember her telling me stories of like just wanting to get in the car and drive back. Like she was just, this is not it. I'm, she's like, I didn't have friends, all the things. And then, you know, eventually I think things kind of settled in. Um, But that was like the beginning of this, these transitions that would happen. And like, it was like, yeah, we're, the parents were probably freaked out about it, probably scared. You know, they had kids in tow and stuff like that, but it was like, we're going to try it. And I think they kept going with like, we're going to try it even after they'd been here for years, after they'd been in Colorado, after they'd switched jobs, like, you know, done different things. And they tried that with us of, like, experimenting with different sports and, like, different activities. And so that part I really love because that also has helped us instill that in our own trials of, like, really sitting in a place of um, looking at him as his, his own person. Like, he's not us. I don't... Like, I'm not, he's a separate human being. So it's our job as the parents to say what lights him up, what's of interest to him. How can we kind of like fan the flames of what things that pop up for him, things that are interesting for him and to not have a spirit of fear and to have a spirit of actually wanting to be open-minded and to try something when you're unfamiliar with it. Because I think that's what a lot has driven 
the fear I think drives a lot of people to make decisions or do things that they wouldn't normally do because they're just scared instead mm -hmm. of, or they're just unknown. Like you fear the things that you aren't aware of or that you don't know. And that's true. And there's also a lot of really beautiful things on the other side of trying something that you've oh, yeah. never done before. And when we allow our children to do like looking at them and doing that and seeing that they're trying things for the very first time in so many different instances, like it begins to kind of soften how you view looking at something that's completely different. It's like, actually it's worth exploring it. So I really appreciate my mom and dad for being like, no, we're going to try something and it might suck. It might be great. It might, you know, but we're here and we're going to make the best of what's here. Um, and I think this is where people and resources and opportunities kind of show up because you've mm. opened yourself up to them. Yeah, it's it's important to have that, to install that in a kid and to show them the example that even though it's scary, but let's try it. Yeah. And it's okay. If we fail, we fail. But trying it because I think yeah. we as parents... Uh, want to protect our kids, right? As much as possible. And rightfully so, because sure. of course you don't want to put your kid in the situation. And I'm not talking about to put kids in dangerous situations. Yeah. That's not that. And that's not what you talk about, but just trying things. Let's go, let's try, you know, even yeah. moving, like your parents moving from Ohio to Colorado. Like, I'm sure that they were scared too, unknown, all of that. Like Absolutely. your mom said, I wanted to go go back because I didn't have anybody here, like friends and anything, but to install that. And I and I see that in you now. You like, Of course, we still get scared when we try something new, but to sure. go there and to try and to see if it works, it works, but I'm going to try it. So um, it's, it's amazing. Kudos to your parents. Yeah, like they are pretty big influencers on that side of going after things. And, you know, I remember <laughs> when I decided to quit my job and go full time into the business. And I remember being scared of like, oh no, like what is my dad going to say? Like, I wasn't worried about my mom. Cause like, she's the one to be like, oh, I love you. But my dad is be like, oh, he's gonna be like, what are you doing? You did what? You did the who? But that was not his response. I was like, yeah, I had to go. It wasn't healthy. It was toxic. I needed to get out. And he's like, you'll figure it out. And I'm like, am I talking to the same person? Like, dad, are you in there? He's like, you'll figure it out. He's like, you have worked enough. You've done enough. You know enough people that you will figure it out. And he was absolutely right. Ah. <sighs> So cool. Yeah. So what inspired you to start LS Ventures? Oh, gosh, that's a long story, Bella. Um, I <laughs> So I know, right? I have always had this little entrepreneurial bug in me. Like there's something that has always been within me that was like, I want to run my own company, do my own thing. Um, to the tune of I had tried a vitamin business I tried that that didn't work insert MLM not good for any relationship on the planet don't ever do it people like and, and, yeah <laughs> multi-level marketing don't do oh, it, it ruins the, lives it ruins friendships don't the do pyramid it. scheme yes, type thing yes, yes yeah. don't do it I tried that 
because I was like, I don't want to be working like this forever and ever and ever. I no, and run it seems so show. promising. It did. Things. Yes, that's what it was. It hooked me. I spent way more money on it than ever. And it's like, if you get people involved, then you can make money. Yes, that's exactly how it goes. And you're like, oh, this is easy until people will start running the other direction when they see you because you've basically tapped everybody and they're like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this. So I'd done that. And what's happened before <laughs> then, even before then, I wanted to like, sell vacuums like that was a separate thing and I was trying to do that like in college during the summers that was terrible too so that was the vacuum then it went to the vitamins and then I was like okay well those two things didn't work so let me try to start my own intuitive wardrobe styling so I actually did like I had you know got everything set up with the secretary of state got all of the articles all the things to set up the LLC I did all that and um, I was still working during all of this. This is what, like 2016-ish? Late 2016, early 2017. And um, I'm like, I can, you know, help people in doing wardrobing and styling. Because I always liked the, I always liked putting outfits together. It's always something that came very natural to me. And like, it was super creative and I loved it. So I started a business that's related to this. I'm doing it on the side. I've got clients on the side. I'm doing like some like VIP day type stuff with people and organizing closets and like paring down um, outfits and stuff like that. And then um, after that, what was this like? Once the, it's running off and on. Like I'm still working full time. It's running off and on. I'll do stuff on weekends and things like that. But there was always a little part of me that was like, what would this look like if I actually gave it everything it needed, right? What, how would this business run if I was able to kind of put these things in place? And it wasn't until, gosh, um, it's probably after the pandemic hit that I really started to pay attention to it, like really give it the love that it, it needed. And, um, and this isn't even what I'm doing now, right? So mm-hmm. the pandemic hit, I'm working at this really toxic job, And I'd gone through a period of like trying to like figure out, did I want to stay there? Did I want to leave? And what happened at the job is like, I basically was discriminated against. It was terrible. Like I was sick. Like I just, I tried to hold on. I mean, it was like golden handcuffs. It was like, I get to give money away and I'm making really good money and all of these things, but I'm still not really that happy. Like it's just, it's so much more complicated than just giving money away. So, um, COVID hits and, you know, then there's the murder of George Floyd. I'm deeply isolated at work. Like there, I have nobody to lean on there. Like no one, there's no one there checking in. I'm like isolated at home. I, I, I don't know what's going on. So finally, like I go through that whole bit at work of not being qualified, not being qualified, all the shit things that happens when you're um, being discriminated against. And I was like, I can't take this anymore. I have to go. If I'm going to not explode from the inside out, I have to do something different. And I wasn't even in a place of saying to myself, I'm going to go look for another job. Like I wasn't even mentally in that brain space to put forth the effort that needed to happen to find another job. And it felt weird because I'm like, it's also COVID. This is Everything was virtual at this point. Everything was upside down. Mm -hmm. So this is a conversation I have with my husband. I'm like, I I need to go. I can't do this anymore. 
I want to see what how this business is going to run, the wardrobe consulting and styling, when I dedicate 100% of my time to it. So that was a scary leap all in of itself because I left the job, I put in my notice, and did not have another job lined up. My other job was the business. Like, that's what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I recognize, too, that not a lot of people have the privilege to do that type of thing. They're like, I can't just peace out on it. You know, everybody got bills like, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was like, let me see what I can do with it. I'd already had a business coach and I was working all these areas to, you know, flesh out the business. And I leave the job and I immediately launch into like scarcity mode of like, oh, no, I don't have another. There's I've never been without a job like or had to look for a job or anything like the business is it. So I am working for like a year on it and like the clients trickle, it's okay, but it is not where I want it to be. Like there's just not enough traction. And I talked to my business coach and she's like, have you thought about going back to what you know that you were doing? I was like, well, no, because I was really stressed out by it. Like, why would I go back to that? But I'd always been in the nonprofit sector. I'd always, like, that was always near and dear to my heart. That was always really important to me. And um, at that point, I said, you know what? I'm going to pivot. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put down the wardrobe consulting and styling. And I already built an entire brand around it. Like, Mm. a whole ass brand. Like, a whole thing. But it doesn't matter if there's no customers. If you have no customers or clients, you have no business. Like, that's yep. just what it was. So it was like, well, it wasn't a hobby. I wasn't treating it like a hobby. But it felt like one in the sense that there wasn't money that was coming in. So, and I'm soloing it. I am doing the content. I am putting outfits together. I am posting. I am, like, doing the videos, all the things. And it's still, like, something just did not feel right about it. So, insert a year later, I switch everything up. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to change the name of the company. I'm going to move into doing something different. I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing as a, you know, nonprofit professional and in that space, in that sector. And I tell one of my friends this and she goes, oh, I have a contract for you. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, why don't you come help me do this, um, this holiday event this was like December of the same December of 2021, I think. No, December of 2020. And no, that's not right. It was December of 2021, somewhere in there, fall, winter. Mm. And I was like, all right, I'll come support you on getting some organ- organizing going with your organization. And like, you can do this holiday event. So I did that. And I was like, wow, that was actually kind of fun. Like, <laughs> it's like, I, liked it. I actually kind of liked that. Like, it was, it was really flexible. I could do it on my own time. Like I just owned every part of it. And then the next contract came in the form of an organization needed someone to do review grant proposals. So they approached me and they're like, yeah, like, do you, we know you did this in your prior position. You gave money away. You were reviewing proposals, you know, have a pretty good pulse on what's happening in the sector. Can you review proposals for us? And I was like, Sure. I always liked doing that anyway. I did it as a volunteer before I was ever paid to do it. So then I said, wow, that was really amazing too. And at that point it was, I'm just now figuring out how to draft contracts. I'm just now figuring out how to draft scopes of work for clients, which can sometimes be very different for everybody. 
And um, what really triggered it was <laughs> the person I was working with at the organization says, oh, well, we need you to submit your insurance, like that you have liability insurance for your business. And I'm like, what is that? Hmm. It's like, shit. Okay. I was like, great. Yeah, I got that. Let me get back to you. Let me get that for you. Okay. <laughs> I, I, could, I could do that. So in conversation, insert, you'll figure it out, Lisa. Boom. Go find the company to provide the insurance at the level that this organization requests to work with outside vendors. Then I get the insurance, get the certificate going. And at that point, it's like, oh, this is a recurring expense because you have to keep paying for Mm -hmm. this policy to financially, like to basically like um, cover your business. And I'm like, oh, shit, that means every month this is coming out of this business account I have to have the revenue to even come in to cover that. So it seems really mundane and really small, but it was like that one thing was like, all right, now you have to figure out how you're going to keep bringing money in to keep affording the insurance for your business. Weird. I don't know. But that's what did it where they're like, all right, now, now I'm in. So I do the next contract. I tear everything out. I wasn't expecting to get the full amount of it because it was based off of the number of proposals that were reviewed. And it was like, well, if it's full blown, then it's this amount. Well, it ended up being the full amount. And I'm like, okay, well, here, here's another one that's in the books. Like, boom, got another one in the books. All of, while, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, I'm like, I need to change the name of the business. I want to do a doing business as, so I don't have to do a lot of these other extra things that are involved with getting everything set up. And I finally said, what business would make sense? I do consulting. I, you know, I do coaching. Like, what would that look like? I do a lot of different things. So I didn't want a name to sort of like pigeonhole me into these things. So this is where LS Ventures comes in. Cause it's like, well, everything I'm doing is a venture. Mm-hmm. Every single client, every single opportunity, every project is a venture. And if you think about it as an adventure, it's like everything's a venture. So I just said, LS makes sense. It's my initials. So like, let me just do it. So it was like, change the name. There's the DBA. Clients keep rolling in. I keep doing contracts. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm looking back at it like I'm figuring it out. I'm scared as hell right now, but I'm figuring it out. And through all this process, it's like, do I go look for another job? Do I go... Do I put all of this down? Like things aren't kind of happening as quickly as I want them to. What do I do? I go look for something else. I applied for jobs during the process, would get deep into a process and something would go wrong. Like either wouldn't get the offer, they would ghost, something would happen. And then I would be like, maybe I'm not supposed to be doing that. The universe was, you were kind of, I don't think you were maybe kicking and screaming, but you were like, still trying to go and universe like stay here you're like like no 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 let me go do this and universe was like ain't happening Mm -hmm. and you're like i'm still gonna do it so you were getting all this all the signs and and also something that you said you like here i am oh like you said here you are lisa figuring it out and i feel like i wanted to ask you did you hear your dad in in like in your brain saying you you're gonna figure it out you're gonna figure it out um trying to think back on like those really like hairy scary moments um I don't know that I heard 
there were times where I would kind of hear that, but I think I was so focused on like doing, like mm-hmm. going to do the thing that it was almost like I didn't give myself enough time to slow down to hear it. So it's not that I, that he wasn't saying it or it wasn't there. It's just, I wasn't still long enough to like hear anything different of like, Oh no, go, you gotta go make it happen get the money, do whatever. And I think, it may have been at towards the beginning or it was like you're just getting started in this. Like, just take whatever project client thing comes. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Explore it. Keep keep doing it. Um, I do want to go back to the work that you were doing before you started your business. Mm-hmm. So you were in a nonprofit world for ten, F- 15 years, 15, 15 plus years. years. Yeah. Before I ask a question. I used to think that nonprofit was this perfect world, right? Before I learned more through you, through <laughs> That's another, what I think. Through, Ooh, another friend of no. mine, through the work I'm doing now. I used to think that nonprofit was this perfect world, right? Somebody starts nonprofit, they have this cause that they wanted to help, whatever that cause is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then they go out there in the world and they seek money to put that money towards the cause. And everybody is happy. As the Only. as the butterfly that flies, <laughs> I don't know if butterfly is happy. I'm just thinking about butterfly. <laughs> that's not the case. Not that's not all the nonprofits, right? So, how was your experience in the nonprofit world? Just just first, I want you to talk just kind of in general mm-hmm. your experience in the nonprofit world. So, I, it started pretty early um, as a volunteer. So before I ever took a job in that sector, um, I was volunteering for, you know, cycling events and walks and runs and all that. And we would do it as a family. So that was like my first kind of exposure to a cause and, you know, um, wanting to give back in that type of way. And through college, I got a really good internship um, with Western Union. I was in like the corporate communications department. And I'm like, um, for an internship, like it was good money for, to be an intern. And I learned a ton. And then I also learned that I was like, I don't want to be a cubicle. I don't want to work in a cubicle. I don't want to do this. Like it was good work. It was in communications. That was originally like eventually what my degree was going to be in, but I wasn't that happy. And I'm like, I don't want to do this corporate thing. I I don't want to do this corporate thing. I'm going to go work for a nonprofit. Um, kind of very similar thought to what you had of like, oh, a little, I get to do work on this mission, you know, all the funds, all the resources, all the things go towards the mission, all that. And, um, I actually got my first job out of college that was working for, um, a health-based nonprofit organization. And, um, I was doing programmatic work and, um, I was the only person of color in the entire organization Um, We'd gone through a really lengthy interview process and um, the boss that I had there, like she was not great. She was just not great. (laughs) Just leave that there. Mm -hmm. And um, I was doing programmatic work and she started to do things like exclude me from meetings. And like, I remember this one time she, she'd sent an email and we were all supposed to, it was a community partner that we were working on the program with. And she jokingly said, I'll tell Lisa to bring her lunch while the rest of us have our food catered. Well, she didn't know that, like, the person who she'd 
said that to hit reply all. <laughs> so I'm on the mess. I, I can see it now. And she, my boss at the time said it was a joke, but thankfully the other person was like, didn't see it that way. They were like, why are you excluding Lisa from this part of the meeting? Why is that even a joke? In exactly. The first place? So there's no other thing to point this to other than it's being racist. It's being discriminatory. That was my first job in nonprofit that, and that oh experience God. with my boss, right? That same experience with that boss, she goes, I get engaged at the, this was like a break that we were on at work and I am engaged at that point. And she's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that until everybody can do that. Do what? Get engaged? Get married. She's like, I'm not getting married until everybody can get married. Okay. Okay. That has nothing to do with, okay. Like, great. Good for you. Great. Right. So then I highlight my hair. Like I come in and like I had done something and like I colored my hair and she goes, well, that's a really expensive habit now. Like. Why is it such a like little jabs? Yeah. Because one, this is a white woman who is my boss and supervisor. She is threatened by me. She is realizing that I am making connections and doing a damn good job at my job and doesn't like it. So she's doing these things to kind of like sabotage and create a horrible experience for me. So she then leaves, um, leaves the organization. I stay there and then I move into a programmatic type, not programmatic, a fundraising job. And um, this is where I get like full blown exposure into raising money on the nonprofit side of things. That's a whole other hamster wheel. It was a hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. It's this constant on the development side, constant like, where's the next dollar coming from? Who's the next donor I need to talk to? What's the next program I need to flesh out in order to raise money to bring this program to life? Like it just didn't stop. So at That's that point, crazy. it just kept going. Right. This is my introduction into nonprofit, yeah. like a terrible boss and an executive director that was kind of checked out in a sense. So I stayed probably too long and not probably, I know I stayed too long in that organization. So I start looking for another position. I find another role, another health-based type organization that's then focused on, it's, it basically is like a pass-through organization mm-hmm. um, and they would receive funds and then they would pass the money down like through the org to all of the other programs in the areas and that I was managing volunteers at that point so now I'm still in the sector but I'm like managing people who aren't paid to do anything and will do whatever the hell they want pretty Mm -hmm. much even though you give them the things right now that's not putting a bad name or stamp on volunteers it's just I cried every day at work in that position like I just remember like calling my mom when I was on a break being like I made a mistake this is terrible. I made a mistake. I should not have done or taking this, taken this job. I should uh-huh. not have done this. What was like, because I work with people that are part-time, and I know that's hard because it, we're not their full-time job, yeah. so I couldn't even imagine working with people. They're not even getting paid, so. It but was whatever. I it feel was, like as a volunteer, like you do things because you want to do something good. Sometimes. Because we would get, like, we would get volunteers who needed, like, to fill their community service hours, which we never accepted them anyway, because we were working with older adults. So, like, this was a 
um, in some instances, more vulnerable population depending. And there were volunteers who wanted to come in and like we would background check everybody. So I'm running a statewide program plus a satellite office that's in New Mexico. So like I'm I'm the one person for the entire organization, the entire state doing the volunteer program plus the satellite office. And it didn't really get that much traction either. So even in that job, I was looking for other things to do mm-hmm. that was not the volunteer side. So I stayed with the organization and collectively through its transition about 10 years. And then it, it transitioned into a grant making organization. So that was the last job before I launched the company. And the last job, the last organization that you work for, that was kind of your last straw in working for somebody, right? Because I know that there was a lot of different things that happened in that organization, mm-hmm. including, again, the, the racism and all of this unfair treatment and and everything. But you also, you had a major burnout, right? I did. I did. I thought that I could just work harder to get what I wanted. Like if I just work harder, if I just put in the extra hours, if I just review more proposals, if I just take on more work, then it will yield the promotion. It will yield the American dream. Yeah, (laughs) all the things, Mm -hmm. right? Well, the issue was, again, here I am in another position where I'm the only woman of color on staff which defaults to almost being the lone representative for an entire race of people. Like, I have all the answers, but I'm surrounded by white people who have no idea the effects and the harm and the isolation that I'm experiencing. So even then, like, at at that, um, in that role and at that job, I felt this deep sense of responsibility to my community and the fact that I was in this really privileged role of giving money away. Like you don't see a lot of people who like are in and out of that position for a good reason. Mm -hmm. But then because I was the only person, it became a situation where they were like, well, Lisa's going to do it. So just hand her the work and I would do it and I would get it done. And my expectation on the other side of that was I would get the accolades that I was expecting. I would get the recognition that I was expecting. No, all it got me was illness, no time for anything else, resentment, and people dumping work onto me. And it became a situation where it started to feel like I was the face of the organization, Mm -hmm. not the person who was actually at the top. That's how much work I was doing. And because I was overdoing, and I always was kind of in this overachieving sort of state, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation of overachieving and overdoing and getting things perfect and all of that without recognizing that like those were all byproducts of living in a white led white supremacist or like society, like all of those things were that, that I was attaching my value, my worth, my productivity to all of the things that I was outputting for the organization, but not seeing any return on my time and certainly not in the form of compensation. There was emotional labor I was dealing with um, on top of like, it wasn't like a physically laborious job. It was just the mental weight of having to go to work every day. And it got worse once the pandemic started and once 
once George Floyd was murdered, like every, it just got worse. Everything just got worse. So there were parts of me that were really thankful that I could escape a little bit of the overwhelm because it was home. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going into the office. I didn't have to hear people talking about my hair. I didn't have to hear people talking about how I was speaking with them. I didn't have to feel any of that. Um, And even after kind of going through and saying, this isn't working, (laughs) I keep working harder and there's no return on me working harder. What is, what, why, why? If, if people just liked me more, right, mm-hmm. I would get what I needed. No. It was, I was the wrong color for what I was doing. That was the difference. That, it wasn't, it wasn't about how smart I was. It wasn't about my capability. It was, you can't do this job because you don't look like what we need you to. But you're still doing great, so you keep your job. But don't ask for any more. And when you do ask for more, we're going to gaslight you into feeling like you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. So that was like, that's almost like an entire career's worth of things that kept happening, but I didn't see them. I didn't know what they were until I'm far removed from it and I'm out doing my own thing, now realizing like I don't ever want to go back to experiencing the isolation and the loneliness that I felt. And anyone or client who works with me or in any sense of the word now, the relationship is more, far more valuable and important to me than what I'm going to produce. So this is where I am so deeply embedded in wanting to have a great relationship and that there is reciprocity in that relationship because it's all the things that I didn't get as an employee working for someone else in a really toxic, terrible culture. And it was like the more... The more that I pushed for the things that mattered, the more that I pushed for DEI initiatives, the more that I pushed, the worse I felt, the more burnout I experienced, the more illness I experienced. So doing that for 10, 15 years, when you get out of it, it doesn't just go away. Like, okay, I'm done. I'm not in that anymore. Oh, no, no, no. It's definitely, it's better now, but you can't expect like, after going through it for 10, 15 years, to be done with it after a year, to be done with it after two years, to be done with it after three years. It almost took me, and I still have moments where I don't feel like I'm totally out of it mm-hmm. because rest is so incredibly important on multiple different levels, and I wasn't getting that. So it's like coming out of burnout is not, you take a two-week vacation and you're done. Coming out of burnout is like a complete overhaul of everything you are doing sometimes it's ways of thinking it's ways of being it's ways of existing if you're gonna get out of the burnout that's what I had to do so I had to say for a really long time I don't know how I was doing this but like I was at work between 7 and seven fifteen ish the 45 minute commute so I'm doing this every single day plus that was getting for the last job yeah plus getting my kid to daycare child care oh plus home, plus cooking, plus all the things. I'm waking up at like 4.35 o'clock in the morning every single day, 45-minute commute, trying to get back home to beat traffic, all the things. Plus, I'm dealing with two chronic illnesses at the same time. I'm like, I don't know how I did it. I don't, which also was what led to some of the burnout, right? So getting past it meant 
I am resting in a very different way. And that, and it's still hard for me to do that now, but like putting rest as a prioritization for what my needs are, mm-hmm. because my entire career was spent around and with people who didn't see my needs, who didn't care about my needs. So I had to say, now that I'm a business owner, I have to put my needs first. I have to better understand what it is that I need and to put a boundary in place in order to continue to meet that need because not doing it will put me right back to where I was and put me right back into a situation where someone would gladly love to have me overgive and overdo, but not truly see me as a human being and a person who's actually doing the work. How are you prioritizing your needs and your rest? So now... um, I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. anymore. <laughs> Thank God. Like, I, it was probably really never something I, my body clock just wasn't really intended to do anyway. Some people are just do this. The, fine, good yeah. for them. But I'm not one of those people. I forced myself into doing things like that. So now it's intentionality around rest breaks during a work day um, that are at least 30 minutes at least of closing my eyes, detaching from tech, phone, all those things. And I still have to work to do it now because as a business owner, everything falls on me. I am doing all the things I'm working on, not doing all the things. Right. But the stage that it's in now, I have to really say to myself, is this important? Do I have to get this done today? Um, and what's really influenced a lot of this is me reading the book rest is resistance by Trisha Hersey. And that book um, is really about, speaks to why rest is so important for dreaming, why rest is so important for creativity, um, why rest is so important for nourishing yourself. And by rest, that's not just sleep. That could mean mental rest, spiritual type of rest. It, it Like, what is the rest? And it's really being deeply embedded in you are enough exactly the way that you are and you don't have to produce something to be valuable um and that that in and of itself is like our society our cap the capitalist society that we live in and being so product driven productivity driven people are walking around here tired and wounded exhausted like it's just like yeah i think we live in a society where you know, everything is fire drill. Everything is on yes, fire. Yeah. You have to do yes. more and yes. more and more. Did you go out, out of your way to do this? Are you going to pay me? No, but you still have to do more and mm-hmm. more and more and more. And it's like, yep. when? And I think this is this is more, this is American culture, you mm-hmm. know, and whether you like it or not, you get mad or not, but it is. It's the culture to where we constantly need to do more, need to prove to somebody that we are good enough for mm-hmm. for, for for whatever that is. Um so I'm glad you're doing this because I just I remember our conversation back in the day, especially during COVID. COVID was hard because there was COVID. And then when when the George Floyd happened, it was just it was a really, really dark time. And so I'm glad you're taking the rest that you need. And I'm so happy that you left the toxic world and you're doing this amazing things now with people you know, and you're doing what matters to you. I do, we do have some questions about nonprofit world. So there is a lot of white 
saverism, I think, in the nonprofit world. Do you agree? Absolutely. So because it's it's interesting how you work in three organizations, nonprofit, and you were the only one or one of the very few people of color. And a lot of the times when nonprofit starts, it's to help either people of color or, or this underserved communities, mm-hmm. all of that. And yet, who do we see in the organization? Just white people. <laughs> and I feel like Hot. we as white people, we do this to make ourselves feel better. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at me. I'm doing so great. I started yeah. this cause. Yeah, like that's all. It's like you yes. do it to make yourself feel better. It's yes. not to actually help people. Yes. It's like... And it's, that's a hard pill to it's swallow. It's an experience of guilt. You feel <laughs> guilt and shame about what you've been able to provide for yourself or your family or what you've been able to afford or the things that have been in front of you. And you're like, but you aren't actually real. And maybe you do realize how those things came to be, that the privilege that was in place is how those things came to be. And now you feel bad about it. So now you're like, well, how do I get, how do I not feel so bad about myself and all the things. How do, how do I not feel so bad about that? About anyone else who I may have stepped on to get here or the whole, you know, historical context of my family of getting here. Mm-hmm. How do I not feel bad? I'm going to start a nonprofit. We have a ton of money. We have lots of generational wealth in our family now. And we feel bad about that. Or what's the foundations? I'm yeah. learning that's a big yeah. thing now. Yeah. That's how a lot of them were built. Yeah. It was wealthy families. And this is a lot for lots of family foundations. It's wealthy families, and now they need a place to put the money. They need a place to put the, the wealth, to put mm-hmm. it back. So they're, the idea is that, well, if I give to these people who are poor, if I give to black and brown communities, if I give to this, I won't feel so bad about all of the money that I've made. Because, see, I'm getting money. You're getting money. You're getting money. problem with that is it's a very paternalist side, like way of thinking. And by that I mean I know best. I know best for what you need. I'm not going to ask you what you need that's unique to your experience in your community. I'm just going to say, here, we're going to set the rules, i.e. foundations, right, Bella? We're going to set the rules of what makes you eligible to get in this club, how you get the money from this club. And by the way, when you get the money, we need you to do 42,000 different things, but we're not going to tell you what those things are and call it a report. And then we want you to tell us what you did with our money but you're lucky if you get it or not. And when you're telling us what you did with our money, we're gonna ding you for not meeting our expectations. But we never asked you what your community needed. But we're gonna- We're gonna tell you what you need, right? We're gonna tell you what you need and we're gonna measure it based off of our measuring stick, not what you need, just, and then we'll figure out if you're worthy of getting more money or not. But we feel great about ourselves because we gave you this money. So what would be the better approach? So let's say, because all the white people, I mean, we are all guilty because we all part of this white supremacy. But then let's say there is this white family. They have money, okay? So the better approach is what I'm hearing from you is, okay, great, you want to give money to communities, to different causes. You go to those community and instead of telling people what they need the better approach would be to say hey we have this money come to the community and you say what do you need I think a different approach to that is and I've talked about this in a different 
setting or podcast, but it's very similar in the sense that it's like power with, not power over, right? Mm-hmm. It's not this hierarchy of people and titles and situations. It's power within. So it's like when you go in lockstep and you walk hand in hand with someone and you say, I have a resource. I am prepared to give away this resource. I don't know what that looks experience is like. We need to talk like said community express to us what it is that's necessary and take the money. That's it. No questions asked. Nothing else. Nothing else. There's no proving. There's no a lot of times foundations will do this in the sense of an application where it's basically like proving your worth or proving your value. That's harmful all in and of itself, right? And we haven't even talked about the native side of communities that are involved with this. Mm. But continuing to ask a community, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Is more a form of an extraction, right? Now it's just, just tell us what it is. Just tell us what it is. And it's like, I get that. But it's really about, are you understanding or making even an attempt to see how the issues that are occurring are on a systemic level? So, when there are issues that are within policies and laws that prevent people from advancing, right? When there's systems and policies and laws that keep people on the margins, like that's why we call it marginalized communities because they're literally on the outside of the inner circle. Those things keep people there. So if we're really going to work with communities, it is how do we get to a point where we can share in the resource and that we aren't thinking that our power is being diminished or taken away by sharing it with the next person? Mm-hmm. That's how we get there. And we stop doing this song and dance about you need the money, you need the resource, I feel bad, I'm going to give it to you, and we keep doing this transaction. That's a transaction. When you start to build a relationship, relationships and trust are built on reciprocity. When you approach it from a space of being reciprocal, the benefits and the outcome of that are not people who have this giant check that's provided to them. It's that you have built and you shared in the power to really achieve the thing and it's sustainable. That's another issue is that Mm -hmm. the things are not sustainable. And it's like, well, people don't have access to the resource because not because they don't want to because they don't know and is it necessary that they don't know well why don't they know (laughs) like what's what's created the problem of why they don't know things like that right and a lot of what the not all funders have caught up to this but this um idea of trust-based philanthropy right um some funders are doing this they're doing it well some funders can't get it right some all the things, but it's really about trusting those who you've provided the resource to. You're not granting anyone money. You are investing. It's an investment. When you invest in something, it's not wham, bam, here you go, oh, bye. When you make an investment in something, that is long-term. That is something that you want to watch grow and mature. And when there's issues, you are there as an additional resource to help kind of bring those things along. That's an investment. But when it's not that, it's very like, here, tick it off the list and keep going so that I can feel better about the harm that I've done to these communities. I gave you money. Come on. A lot of the times you hear that I give you money. What else do you want? Mm -hmm. But it's like, I don't know, like 
a lot of times money is just, you're just throwing something. Mm -hmm. Maybe you go in there, maybe they don't need money. Maybe they need, you know, education or connections, network. Why, you know, why is it always money being thrown? Right. I mean, and we know that that it is a resource. It is a tool. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also a tool that's been used to wield a lot of power over people. Mm -hmm. That's still happening. And sometimes... Nonprofits can sometimes be the worst about that because it's sort of hiding behind this, but we're not here to make money, right? But you're operating as if you are a corporation, right? You treat people as such, you're structured as such. The only difference is the tax. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is exactly the same. And then you get people who are very much so on the savior train where they're like, well, I just wanted... You know, feed the babies in Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now what? Would you invite them into your home? You sent your check. Now what? Would you look at someone on the street and say, here, take this $100,000. I don't need to know what you did with it. Mm-hmm. And when we look at trust, like when you look at the trust-based philanthropy and this sort of idea and this model, it really is about giving them money and allowing the recipient of that to do whatever it is that they need to do with it. You don't put benchmarks and milestones and things onto that because what you're really doing is saying, you know what's best for what you need. Go do the thing. That's it. It would be like me going to one of you and being like, hey, so it would, like, with your kids, I'd be like, oh, so I think um, Roy and Amelia need to do this, this, and this. Here, take this take this 20 grand, but this is how I want you to spend it. You don't get to do whatever you want with it. I'm going to tell you what it is because I know what your kids need, and I know nothing about them. You'd be like, what the, what? Like, why would I, why would you take that? Like, I don't, I don't want it, like... Would you argue, because um, I also work with nonprofits, right, to where um, there is money involved as well. And so then people argue, well, if you don't want this type of money, this type of grants to where there are restrictions, Mm -hmm. then don't apply for those money. But it's such a, like, power hold. That's exactly what it is. I'm dangling this in front of you. That's exactly what it is. If you want this. I need you to contort into this to fit into this so in order to fit into this this is how we're going to do this you either take it and you contort and you become something you're not or you stay true and you don't take the money if you stay true and you don't take the money what does that do for your mission and your organization Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're probably resource strapped because you didn't contort and conform no wonder we have so many black and brown led and serving organizations who don't apply for certain funds for that reason alone. Because doing it means you can't stay true to yourself and your mission and who you want to serve because they put restrictions on what you're able to do. So I've said from long time, taking me a while to get there, but after I'd been in the sector and done the grant making, organizations and communities just need to be given the money to do whatever they need to do with it. And that is it. There is so much money in state and federal funds. Like, there's so much money. Yep. But there's also so many restrictions. Yep. And 
and some of the organization that desperately need the money to do the cause that they do have to spend so much time on tracking this money that it takes them away yep. from doing the cause. Correct. Can I play devil's advocate just for a bit of thought? So there's a lot of people, I don't, we were talking about this earlier where it's like, if you don't track it though, what if somebody goes and just takes all the money and goes on vacation? Use or, it, use it for personal use. Exactly. Seen that too, unfortunately. <laughs> but also, I mean, what do you think? Like, I mean, it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's definitely possible. Um, but how is that any different from someone embezzling money as an accountant in a company? Right. Okay. How is it different? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, it's no different. It's just now this person, like, has their hands on the money all the time and can see all the things. So, of course, it's easy to, like, siphon a little off the top. It's no different to me. I think one of the ways that some of that is there's only so much that you can control and this is where maybe there's something that's in there for for legally from that standpoint but it's doubtful. Like if we're really sitting in the space of trust and the organization is there as well, the likelihood of that happening is probably pretty low. It is so interesting to hear you word it this way, right? Because I feel like sometimes trust and money, it's, uh, it's hard to put them together in, 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 in a way because just because I've heard so much about this, like, well, you know, we put certain restrictions on certain funds because somebody in the past went and used them for personal use or used them on you know, like, for example, food is allowed in some grants and now it's not because somebody before went and, you know, ate lobster for five days straight with their friends where they were supposed to go and feed the homeless. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, so you just telling me, not you telling me, but it's like, so you just telling me, oh, yeah, just trust, trust that they do good work. But, but I do believe that, that that's, how the past should go, right? We build trust with these organization and then give the money. I trust the organization mm-hmm. as well. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, the organization that is receiving money also should do the same thing from, you know, have the, like do what they're supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like do the cost, don't do something off because then you ruin it for other people. Which is sometimes, some instances, how some of these policies have kind of been put together. Because all it takes is one person to screw it up. And yes. And messes it up for everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also some ownership is taken within the organization who got the money. Like, from said person who did whatever. But this is why when you structure organizations, that it's also their responsibility to put in these, um, one, that you are at least doing what you can to hire reputable people who are honest and genuine in the work that you're doing and who, you know, who care. Right. But if someone comes in and they've talked to the big game and you trust them and you're coming from it for within good faith and they do something that's outside of that, there's nothing you could have done to like, to some things are just out of your control. They just are. So I think what I'm really saying is like, 
doing what's what is truly within your control, but not to the point that it's controlling mm-hmm. and then creating more of a barrier to access more of an issue. Mm-hmm. The problem comes in when there's multiple barriers that don't make sense, like multiple hoop jumping, like an application process from a federal standpoint or a state standpoint. It's a hot mess. Like that in and of itself prevents organizations from applying for money because they're like, I have to use so much time and resource that I already don't have to try to put to completing this application that I'm not even going to do it because it's not worth it. Because of the policies that are in yes, place, because, because they're scared yes, of yes, because one Because of the policies that are in place, because of the hoops that you're forced to jump through just to get the money. Because right? they're scared that some person, one person is going to go buy extra lobster or something. So it could be, it could be a multitude of different things, but. And the other thing is that some, a lot of organizations who are giving their money away have harmful practices that are, um, they are steeped in white supremacy. They are harmful. They continue to be oppressive. Like even the structure of organizations has an oppressive, it's, it's oppressive in and of itself too. All the hierarchy, the very top down things, like some organizations don't even realize that how they're operating mm. is oppressive, that it continues to be oppressive you say that they don't know that they operate in this way or they do or they don't know i think it's a little bit of both i think some are aware of it and aren't willing to do the work to unpack it Mm. and i think some of them they're just like well this is just what we figured out and they're completely like can't see that what they're doing is creating a problem and this works inside the organization for staff and particularly staff that are representative of marginalized populations and those that are, who are oppressed. And it works the same way outside the organization for organizations who are interested in the money, who need the money. Mm. So it's like you experience an oppressive culture as a marginalized identity. And then if you're an organization who's serving those who are on the margins, you are probably potentially experiencing oppression from the organization as well. We're going to take a break to give a shout out to our favorite sponsor. Ingrid D. Magidson is a world-renowned international artist based in Aspen, Colorado. She creates layered mixed media and abstract art. She's inspired by the beauty and nature in pieces from the Renaissance era. We are thrilled to have Ingrid D. Magidson as our sponsor, and we encourage you to support her incredible work. If you want to learn more about this artist, go visit her at www.ingridmagidson.com. Again, that's www.ingridmagidson.com. Now let's get back to the show. You know, listening to you now and in the past, my opinions of nonprofit definitely changed, right? I, I didn't taint you, but I may have. <laughs> no, uh, it's good. I didn't even like... It opened my eyes how how they are, you know, the money that is given mm-hmm. to the organization doing the work that I do and how they are. And, you know, it's both in a nonprofit side and on the side of giving money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Both need so much work. Yeah. And like that, the saviorism, the I'm coming to save you, all the things. It's like with these some foundations and some of those that have been created, it was like, well, how did your family get all the wealth? Mm-hmm. like chances are you were the owner of slaves chances are something in your lineage stole from someone's right yeah and you don't get, get where them. you are right 
So now, once you find that out and you know that, you're like, oh, shit, now I feel bad. So let me go make this nonprofit organization and give money away so I don't feel so bad about myself. Meanwhile, I've stolen land. I've stolen ideas. I've killed off communities. I've bought and sold human beings. Mm-hmm. I have benefited from my white skin in my white body from all the things. And now I feel bad. And I'm going to continue to be terrible in every sense of the word. But I'm giving money. I have a foundation. I have a nonprofit. So I don't feel as bad without actually thinking about what does it really look like for me to repair and share in what was, in some instances, most cases, unrightfully earned. Mm-hmm. Unfairly earned. There's a lot of work that a lot of people are not willing to do. Yeah, because it's hard. Yeah. As a white person in this country, it's very easy. You could turn your head. You don't have to deal with it. You don't, you're, you coming into a room, that preceding of you gets you access. Me coming into a room does not provide access for me. It precedes me. What I look like precedes me from people making decisions on how they're going to work with me, talk with me, respect me or not. That's, this is the world that we are in. So the fact that I am now in this place of like, I am a business owner. I am the face. I am the brand. I am whatever it is. Like that is something that is in front all the time. And I'm sure that there have been instances where folks have said, like, I don't want to work with this business, my business. That's fine. I would rather have you do that and make that decision and spare me the pain and spare me the frustration and spare, spare me of all that than to just work with me and for what. So I'm like, if you can't respect the fact that I am a human being, then we don't, on the most basic level, then what are we doing? What are we doing? And that's a frustrating part of, of, of all of this. Yeah. You know, we can respect each other on a fact that we are human beings. We have both legs and, 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 and arms and brain, right? The only difference is the little, what is it called, pigmentation in a skin. That's the only difference. But that makes a huge mm. difference, unfortunately, in this world. I think empathy is another one. When you can be empathetic and you show up with empathy, it puts you in this place of like, I may not sit in your shoes or have been experienced the things that you have, but I can hold the space for you mm. to exist. I can hold the space, I can give you the room and like hold, be the container for you because I am empathetic to a situation. And we start with empathy and we humble ourselves and actually understand that like our experiences don't need to be the same, but we do need to, like, can we start? Can we start with actually trying to like feel where that person is? Like to feel what that's like. And that's what I think people don't want to do because it's uncomfortable. So when you're able to turn your head and just look the other way, what difference does that make when you are unable to do that on a daily basis? When it's confronted and it's in front of you every single day, you can't turn your head. I don't get the luxury of turning myself inside out. 
I can't. When the murder of George Floyd happened and, you know, we are all stuck in a house that's happening. And unfortunately, there has been so many murders Mm -hmm. of black men and women. But because we were so busy, right, we look at the video. Oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Right. And kind of put away. And like you said, turn ahead, go about a day. And I remember when that happened, you know, all stuck in the house. We all look and we can't turn away. And I and I remember we were all in lockdown, so we weren't really seeing each other in person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, of course, everything turned into social media. And, and I remember, um, unfortunately, seeing some comments, even from my Ukrainian community, that I was like, wow, some people are really fucking racist, that you didn't know that they were, right? Mm. Yeah. So seeing that and just and just seeing so much because it was like very heavy either on one side, like, oh, my gosh, how is this happening? Like, you know, let's do something about it. Or, or then it was like, oh, not a big deal. And I remember so standing in the kitchen with Roy and I was like, it's just, you know, just so exhausted mentally. It was like, I just it's like, how can people be this? It's so exhausting. And he goes, and that was like a, a moment for me. And he's like, how do you think I feel? And how do you think every black person feels on a daily basis? This is what we feel every day. We can't turn a hat. We have to be faced with this. You leave the house mm-hmm. and, you, and you think if you're going to come back alive, mm-hmm. you know? If the police is going to stop me, mm-hmm. is the, how is this going to end? Yeah. How, you know, going and like, you know, dealing stuff at a job that, you know, you're constantly being questioned, mm-hmm. not because of the work you do, but because of the color of your skin. And I think, I think people of color, black people are so incredibly strong all the marginalized community because so much shit that white people did you still protest you still fight you still you for some reason you still have to prove to all this white people that did so much harm that i'm doing a good job i am a good person all of that and I don't know, like, I, I think about this world that we live in, and I don't want our kids to live in this fucked up world that we live right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a daily occurrence. Not because it's true, but because the world that we live in has painted this picture and provided this narrative of inadequacy, lack, less than, beneath, all these things that aren't even true. So when you spend your your career, which in my case, you know, when we were you know kind of talking about this topic, it was like, if I just prove my value, if I just prove my worth, if I just keep doing, if I just keep producing, someone will see. And that's the shitty part about it is that I had to go create my own to rebuild the confidence. That's what needed to happen. So it was like all of those things that I'd gone through 
yes, they were bad. They were uncomfortable. They were unfair. And they pushed me in a way that I probably would not have done in the sense that everything I needed was already within me. It was already there. I was in the wrong place. I wasn't in the right environment. And if I say it on a global perspective, sometimes it's like not even being in the right society, really. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm able to do and what I am capable of is not dictated to me by someone outside of me. It is me. I have it. And for me to think that the, the things, the information, the signals I'm getting from folks outside of me to tell me who I am or what I am not, those are the things that I have to like throw out and say, you know what, I'm doing it. I'm going to do this in a way that speaks to me, that honors who I am, that honors my culture, honors my being, and the things that I need in the way that I need it. So even running a business and doing the things and resting is a part of pushing back against all the things and the narrative that people tell me that I am not and who I am not. And it's like, there is a level of strength that is within that. And there's also levels of strength that exist in the sense that it's like, I don't want to be strong all the time. It's exhausting. I can't be strong all the time. And if you've been confronted with so many negative portrayals and then people treat you as such yeah it does affect you becoming hyper vigilant you are stressed and exhausted all the time because nowhere is safe hmm. you go to work and you overdo it and it's like in 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 this moment like with us even talking about this the rawness of this is that Every day I am saying a prayer that my family ends up back home. That we are back together again that night. Because somebody, somewhere, does not have that. They won't have that. Someone, somewhere who looks like me, left their house that morning and did not come home that night. For whatever reason. So every day that I have the opportunity to work to make a difference, to create these opportunities for other people. That is what drives me. And no matter what I've been told about who I am or what my capabilities are, that I know in my heart that I have a purpose to do what I am doing. It may have taken me 15 years of a career and terrible bosses and toxic cultures to get me there but what it has taught me is this that when I show up in a space of being authentic and genuine and with love that the right people show up the right opportunities come the support is there so starting a business is not it's not an easy thing. It's not for the faint of heart. Neither is being a parent. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. But had it not been for the things that have happened to me, those are the things that help me make the decisions right now. Those are the things that help 
propel me in a way that I never would have thought. Because I think a lot of times we want to tell ourselves like, oh my gosh, like this was, it was a terrible experience. And I could easily fall back into, it's not worth it. I'm not doing it, right? But I know that I am somebody's example. That my story and what I went through, you know, I am the first example for my son. Mm-hmm. If I don't show him that it can be done, and he goes to the narrative of what the what society has told him who he is. I am his first teacher. So is his dad. So it's like, it's a collective responsibility that I feel of showing him that you can do this in a different way. And that there are still good people in this world. Yeah. Yeah, that is our job as parents, to tell them that there is a different way of doing, yeah. especially to our yeah. kids who are not white. Yeah. That there is a different way of doing. You don't have to be who society tells you to be. You can be and do whatever it is that you want to do, and you will succeed. And, man, kudos to you and, and Kyle for doing an amazing job with Cree. He is a very a very kind and awesome little man that is going to do amazing things in the world because of you, because of you, because of what your parents, Kyle parents did, yeah. did to you guys. And you keep doing that. And that's, that's who we need to raise an amazing, strong children who will change this to better. Um, but I feel like we also need to work to, to do it better so they don't have to do as much as much work because gosh, when does it when does it end? They need Oof, they, yeah. they need to That's, have it. Yeah. They need to have it better. Um I am just so uh this conversation is just just amazing and so and so necessary and so like it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. And they bring us together, the story, our experiences. And yeah. because I know, I know you're not the only one out there that, that felt that in a job. You know, there's so, yeah. unfortunately, so many other amazing women of color that experiencing that yeah. now. And... Yeah. Oh, I can't tell you how many... I stories that I just hear of women who have left the traditional structure of a job to start their own company, to start their own businesses in order to heal Hmm. from the trauma that they went through from working in corporate settings and sometimes not corporate settings, just working, just working. Um, And that was the way for them to get out. And I think for me, it was like that, not, I can say this now, but I didn't realize that it was like, that was part of me healing from the burnout, which I'm still doing. Like, I still have to put things in place to do that. Um, But, you know, you'll see these women and women of color in particular who are experiencing lots of autoimmune conditions that have been brought on due to stress that have been just, you know, the overworking, the overdoing, and, like, there's no out. And it's, like, there's not 
enough that can be done mm. until it's a complete overhaul. Like I was saying before, like it's a complete overhaul. And some of them, it's literally ex- leave and do the next thing. Because it what is what ultimately try to save their health. Where are you at right now with starting your business, with doing your healing journey? Would you say that you are now in a good place where you're happy with what you're doing? Or do you still, you know, with your business, or do you still sometimes think, oh, I should go get a job? It, yes. <laughs> it's all, it, yes, it's all those. Um, right now in the business, it is, what is this? Two and a half years in to mm-hmm. the like official, unofficial two and a half years. So That's it's still amazing. very much in a toddler stage. It's like a toddler. So you're in a like, terrible tooth? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's very you much. You biting and screaming? Yes. Like it's very <laughs> much this period where you're like, you're learning all these things. Like you kind of got your feet about, you You know, like you know how to walk, you can run, you can do that. You can crawl, you can make it all happen. Like, are you doing it steadily and consistently all the time? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, But I have had a couple of years now at least to like have some different projects and experiences, client experiences under kind of underneath me where I can understand what I can do differently now. I very much so have seen kind of this a narrowing or maybe I should say not narrowing, but like this clarity around what I want to do. So, like, and when I first start out, it's like, I'll just try all the things. Like, if it feels like it, all right, let me just try it, all those things. And the more projects that I've gotten involved in, the different things, the more I've been able to discover what's really lights me up, what doesn't stress me out, um, types of clients that are dream to work with, clients where you run the other way, like, and beginning to understand and, like, seeing what that looks like and not getting involved Um, I have met more interesting, cool people as a result because, Mm. you know, I go to networking events and, you know, we're there to exchange information and ideas and business has come out of that. And so it's this, I think in those moments where things feel scarce and I, that distinction of feeling scarce and them actually being scarce are different things, right? Because when you approach things in this scarcity type of mindset, you are focused on what you don't have. You're focused on lack. You're focused mm. on, like, I don't have the thing. When in reality, what I've realized is that making a decision or making decisions in business or what have you ever else from a place of abundance, from a place of faith, from a place of I have the tools, from a place of I have a community, your outlook looks different. And when I've always found that when I'm able to kind of be in this space of starting with gratitude, even in this business, of the things that are working, of the things that I am grateful for, always brings the next opportunity, always brings the next person, collaboration, thing. And I think as an entrepreneur, and even kind of being in that space, you remain open to things looking different than how you thought they were. Mm-hmm. 
And I think for a really long time at and earlier on, I was like, I want to have all the things now. I need it all now. Yeah. It's and I'm like very glad that none of those things happened when I asked for them because I wasn't prepared. <laughs> like, like I wasn't prepared for the, like, oh, my gosh, if you had an influx of all these clients right now, could you handle it? Nope. Nope. The universe always <laughs> provides, right? Ingrid Maggotson, who is Isabella's mom, she always said the universe will always provide and it provides the right thing in the right time, right? Sometimes we think, oh, I need this and this and this. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a yeah. reason that there is not this and this and this thing is because you're not yes, ready yet. you're not ready. You need to do the work for to be ready when that thing comes, yes. right? So... Um, now that you are a business owner, and, and you said, like, I asked you, do you still think that I should get a job? You're like, yeah. So in a, in a previous <laughs> podcast, when we interviewed Isabella's mom and dad, they, because, you know, they do art together. And so they're also uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah. And Jay, not to spoil the previous episode, but um, so he said, we were down to the wire, like $5 in the account. And Ingrid said, well, somebody around this house should get a job. <laughs> I'm going to get a job. Jay, you should go get a job. So... Now, I mean, you are still like kind of like you said, you are still young toddlers, but you are, you know, starting to thrive. Mm -hmm. Do you have that like this the scare the scarcity moment like, oh my gosh, somebody around my business needs to get a job? I think it does show up sometimes. Like, you know, it's comes in the form of, you know, a client left. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the one to fill it. Or I don't know, something, there's some unexpected ex business expense or something like that. And it can feel like that. We're like, uh-oh, like, I should probably go figure this out. I'm going to go look for a job. And in the times that I did that, even before now, what would happen is it wouldn't work out. But the next contract would. Mm -hmm. So, like, it was this weird of this, like, oh, my gosh, like, it's not happening. It's not happening. I'm going to keep... Doing, doing, doing. I'm going to keep do. Just do it. Just go do it. Versus what if I took my foot off the gas for a second? Like, and stopped trying to control what it was and kind of letting it, letting things kind of unfold as they needed to unfold, which usually led to you're not supposed to go work, do that thing. Don't go over there and get another job because I have this thing that's ready for you mm -hmm. but I needed you to like wait a month before the thing was ready for you right and I think one of the things that has really helped me is this affirmation and it's this what is for me will find me I don't chase I attract what is for me will find me which then releases the pressure off of me of going to find the thing because whatever I'm seeking is seeking me too. So if mm -hmm. I keep doing the stuff, all I'm doing is tiring myself out versus saying, what does receiving look like? And if I take the, um, the expectation off of how I think it should be and wait for what it is, what does it look like to not be stressed out about it? Now, 
that doesn't say it's like all rainbows and butterflies and it's like everything is just amazing all the time that's just not even real like why are we not that's not real it's not i thought it was i thought that's a thing when you get to a certain point mm -hmm. everything's butterflies i know that's what i was wouldn't thinking. it be lovely if it was i know but it can't I, be but when you when i think about and like even like with the two if you the two of you in space and time maybe outside of this podcast when you think about the things that you've been through the things that have happened to you and where you are now and the challenges that happened to you before you got to where you are now, look at how much they help you right now. Like in the moment and it's happening, you're like, this is awful, this is terrible, what, what do I do? But then all those little points in time where something was shitty all help lead you to navigating the challenges that exist for you right now. But you wouldn't have known what to do now had it not been for all these other little things that came before it. So it's not, it's almost like it's, it's, there's a lesson and something to be learned in all of the things, I feel like, in everything. It is. What advice would you give to someone thinking about starting their own business? Definitely from a financial standpoint, if you can, know what you need before you take the leap and know how long you can go without before you take the leap from a financial perspective. Um, and I'm saying that because I, I had some of that, but not all of that. So it would, maybe it would have changed a few things that I did. Um, the other thing is that I'd probably, advice I'd give to someone who was starting their own business was do the mindset work. You really have to work on mindset. Because once you launch into this journey, all of your shit comes up. Your shit around money, it comes up. Self-worth, it comes up. Being productive or and what success means, like what your definition of success may mean, all of it comes up. Because now you don't have the, the umbrella of a company that you work within to say as much to give you the value of what's important. Like that's given to you when you work for a company, like those things are established. But when you start your own gig, you're establishing your own values, you're establishing your own vision, you're establishing your own mission and what you wanna do and mindset. Work on your mindset, the things that are important to you and really being intentional about what you're saying to yourself about yourself. Oh. Become. It's not just a business, but that could really be true for anything. But especially when you're out there and you want to do this thing, that there will be days where you're like, this shit's for the birds. I'm done. I'm going to armchair quarterback it somewhere and just mm -hmm. do, do my thing, right? It's very easy to just be, I'm, I'm out. And then you have other days where you're like, this is amazing. I don't ever want this to end. Yeah. And then the next day, hour, <laughs> you might be like, I'm done. I don't care. Okay. It, it is very messy. It's the roller coaster. It's messy. It's very messy. Get ready for messy and exhilaration and frustration and pure joy. And also you question your entire sanity the whole time. 
I'm crazy. No, I'm not. Uh, yes, this is crazy. This is amazing. I'm crazy. No, I'm not. And the, yeah, all the things. Don't like, you feel like we go through that? I This yeah. morning, I was like, I'm yeah, done. You might do it like Wait. all in the same day. You might go through every single piece on, on the spectrum in the same day. You will wake up and you're like, it's funny I can it's kiss true. the day. This is amazing. I'm so excited. And then two hours later in midday, you're like, this shit is stupid. I hate every part of this. <laughs> Get away from me. <laughs> I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm moving yeah. on. I'm done. I'm I retiring. Quit. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And then something amazing happens and you're like, okay, I can keep going. Yeah. This is this, great. This is good. This is what happens with me, with me and Bella. But we have this like thing to where when I freak out, I was like, what are we doing? Is this even what we want to do? Are we providing any value? And then we get some feedback how like, Oh, after I listened to your podcast, this happened. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then oh, then Isabella's starting to freak out. But it's good to have this, like, partnership to work. You gotta, work. like, talk each other off the ledge. Yeah. yeah that's in marriage and everywhere, right? Like, yeah. you can both freak out. Yes. You can. especially Just when, don't do it at the same time. Yeah. That, or, like, or, like, when when she freaks out. And it's good that we don't do it at the same time. You can't time. do it at we the can. same time because your shit will explode. If you do it at the same time, it's not not good. Not good. Because no, you... We were panicking before yeah. Eric's interview. We didn't, we couldn't get into the thing, and she was panicking. And she's like, "How are you calm?" And I was like, "Cause I don't have an option." Right now. <laughs> See, you, you took like, it, and I'm trying to put like stuff together. And I was like, "And so she, it's nice because she sees." I wish I had that option, but I she sees that, and she was like, "She's like, she's like, do you need help?" I'm like, "Yes, take this. I can't put this together." But then we come down. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, it's it's either that you're writing it yourself or you're writing it with somebody. Yeah. You constantly have to talk yourself out of it or somebody will talk you out of it. But I think doing something for yourself is the best thing if you have the balls to do it. Do you still have, do you, do you have questions or should we do the defining moments? I want to provide this space. What measures can be taken to ensure equitable distribution of power and decision-making in nonprofits between white individuals and people of color? Um, how can yeah. nonprofits have better, have more equal decision-making mm. between people of color and white people? You absolutely need representation from those communities, especially when it comes to decision-making and actually truly giving folks the decision to be made that sits with them, not this fake version or decision light um, in the sense that you take the input, but you don't really take the input. Um, There's one. The other one is transfer the power out of your hands and put it in the hands of the people who are actually experiencing the thing. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's... The other part of that is get out of the way. (laughs) Get out of the way. Unless you are going to sit at the seat of being part of the solution, then shut up, get out of the way, and let the people who are going to solve it, solve it. Because continuing to insert oneself into a, a challenge, an issue, and not really being part of the solution, all you're doing is creating a bottleneck and you're slowing down the progress. And let's not call it progress for the sake of just saying, oh, I did the thing, I gave the money or whatever. Uh, That's enough. No, it's not. No, it's not. And it's like, it, it, a lot of that does, it goes back to like sharing, sharing in the power 
and stop thinking that your decisions and that your ideas and thinking are the way. There can be multiple solutions to something. There, it's a yes and. And I think another piece of that is like this binary type of thinking or a this or that gets us in trouble. When you open yourself up to the multiple possibilities of something, it eliminates the, the, the likelihood that you're going to think that your way is the way. Yeah. That was a good answer. So much good stuff was said here. And I feel like we only scratched the... the a part two. Do uh, you want a part two, y'all? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Should we do this again? We absolutely will do this again. What mm. is the three? three? And one's got to be a funny or an embarrassing story. It's the thing I came up with. Okay. It's the thing we're doing. So, so what three makes, defining moments? What makes you who like you are today? Um, <laughs> okay, here's a funny one. Defining funny moment. So a long time ago, my brother and I were riding bikes and we had this really big hill at our house and we decided to go out and ride our bikes like soon after it had rained. Well, your brakes on your bike don't work very well if they've been wet. Like you can't like the Mm -hmm. grip to stop or even like the reverse brakes where you like use the pedals. So I'm riding my bike. I come down the hill on the corner and... I don't remember where my brother is at this point, but I go left in the corner, come down the hill. And my dad's car is like, it's parked in the garage. And I'm like, oh, it's probably okay. I'm going fast at this point. I'm like, I can stop. I'll be okay. Not so much. I jump the driveway, still trying to have my hands on the brakes, going full speed, jump the driveway, hit the back of my dad's car, the back of the car. My bike is still upright. Like, my bike wheel gets wedged under the bumper. Oh, So my bike is upright, straight. The handlebars are straight. I am on the trunk of the car at this point, because I'd flipped the handlebars. I'm on the trunk of the car at this point. Oh, God. And I don't know if my dad heard it. I don't know who came out of the house, but my brother is laughing at me, like (laughs) laughing profusely. I'm not hurt. I'm okay at this point. I love how your brother's laughing. That's what right? they do, right? Not helping. Just not even like, surprised. I'm just, just thinking. And at this point, what am I, like, eight maybe? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. My brother's dying laughing. I'm, like, kind of laughing, kind of crying, a little freaked out, not really traumatized at this point. And I'm just laying there on the hood of the, the, the trunk of the car, like, what just happened? And, of course, my brother's like, well, this is why you need to break. I'm like... I did. <laughs> like I did. I don't I don't know why that like that that particular moment sticks with me. That and then like tripping on rollerblades. Anyway. <laughs> it is really hard to like try to narrow this down to like just just three things. Of course we have a lot of defining moments, right? Because I feel like almost you know, not on a daily basis, but something happens to us to where it's like, oh, and when you think back you like this is why I'm here today, because that happened. One thing that's popping up, and there's plenty of other, if I sat long enough, there's plenty of others I could kind of, that would come into this. Earlier this week, right, I um, wasn't really feeling that well, and just feeling grumpy, just grumpy, all the things. And I'm like, a client has left, 
like, how am I going to replace them? Blah, blah, blah. All the things. What's going to happen in like this, this business in the next year? This is bad. All the stuff. And then I look up. And I don't know if you are familiar with angel numbers or anything like that or like <laughs> sequencing of numbers that come up. But there's these numbers that come up and I look at the clock and I'm getting ready to walk out the door. I look at the clock and it's 11, 11 on 11, 1. Mm-hmm. So it's 11, 11 on 11, 1. And the end of the sequence is 1, 2, 3 because it's 2023. 20, so if you do 11, 1, 23, 1, 2, 3 at the end of the sequence. So I'm like, and I keep seeing ones everywhere. And I'm thinking, what's happening? So I look up like what's ones. Mm-hmm. Like why do I keep seeing this sequence of ones? Mm-hmm. And from what I've been able to read and discover, it's that, you know, like your guides and your angels are with you. They're letting you know that like you are on the right path. Like you're on the right path. You're on the right path. But this came literally, I am mad and I can't really figure out why I'm just grumpy. I'm upset. And I'm like, I got to go do this thing, whatever that was. Why? And then in an instant, I just look at the clock in that moment and I'd seen ones before, like I'd woken up earlier that week at 1, 11 in the morning. I other, other times, like I'd looked at the clock at 1, 11 in the afternoon. So these just keep showing up. I'm like, this is not an accident. So that to me was like, it was like a signal of like, whatever you're going through, whatever you're feeling right now, you're on the right track. It may, and it, once I kind of settled into that, I'm like, there was a, a bit of a relief that I sort of felt. And the rest of the day, I didn't have anything to be grumpy or angry about because I got the signal, like, you're on the right track, Lisa. Just keep going. It doesn't feel that way right now, but you can't be in this place all the time. Mm-hmm. So just wait. And the universe will provide. I love it. I believe in angel numbers, so. You do? Mm-hmm. I feel like I see uh, 44 everywhere. Mm, That's yeah. my number. I don't know. I have to look what my number yeah. is. Just keep paying attention. Sometimes it's show, on the clock. Yeah. Sometimes it's a license plate. Sometimes it's a receipt. Sometimes it's a total, like a total that when you buy something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other people listening to this probably may be like, what the hell? Um, but I just, I was like, grumpy 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 and then all of a sudden that thing came and i'm like oh well maybe i have nothing to worry about you don't and can i just tell you that you are an amazing human that no thanks that (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) um and i'm just so happy that we're able to have this conversation because isabella told me something yes when we had a call with you so we had a call with my good friend katie who we interviewed today and then like 20 or 15 minutes after you we talked with her and bella said oh my gosh irina you just have so many amazing women in your life like strong and powerful and because i do have you guys so you know, it's like when you live by the beach, and I know it's maybe a stupid comparison, but, you know, it's like, oh, you know, people say, oh, when I live by the beach, I would, you know, and so sometimes when we have things, we take them for granted, mm, or yeah. not that I take my friends for granted, but you don't see I it, you're like, you oh my gosh, I have this amazing people in my life, right? But when she said it, I was like, oh my gosh, I really do, and then 
when, you know, I haven't seen Katie in a little bit. And, um, and so we, we started talking. I was like, as we talk, and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. So we talking with you and I've known you for only six years. So our friendship is still young, but I feel like it just, it's so deep. And I'm so grateful to, to you and to your friendship and to see that you blossoming into this, you know, beautiful queen that you are doing all this amazing work, helping all these people and the world just need more people like you. Oh, thanks. Kisses. You make me cry again. Oh, gosh. You oh, <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, thank you both for the opportunity to do this. And I think keep going because when people are able to tell their story, I think there's a lot of healing components to that. Um, and when you can get people in this place of, like, telling, telling what has happened to them, and sort of what they've been brought through. Like there, there's something that is effective and impactful for anybody who is listening to that. And you just never know whose life that you're going to like, kind of like be that spark that's sort of in there. So like keep doing this because I think it's important. And I think the diversity of the stories that you all are putting forth and that people are getting a chance to see and experience that, on so many different levels. Like, I think it just speaks to like the complexities of just humanity and who people are and what makes them so amazing that they are. And I think like you've, this is great. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing your experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was not always like that, you know? Um, But I think, it's like having a gift and not having something to say and something effective and not saying the thing which could help the next person. So why keep it contained? Exactly. Well, honey, my honey, my Bella Boo, I love you. I'm oh, glad we're doing this together. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is amazing. And on that note, I'm Irina. I'm Isabella. We see you all next time. Toodle. Toodle. <laughs>